On December 4th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Moore versus United States. The case concerns a challenge to the mandatory repatriation tax, and it asks whether the Constitution allows Congress to tax American shareholders for the earnings of a foreign corporation. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In this episode, we'll break down the arguments on both sides of the case, and we will learn together about the history of taxation in the founding era, the purpose of the 16th Amendment, and the meaning of the word taxation. Joining me to answer these important questions are two scholars who've written about the history and meaning of the taxing clause, the 16th Amendment, and who filed briefs on both sides of the case. Akhil Amar is Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale, where he teaches constitutional law in both Yale College and Yale Law School. He filed a brief in the case in support of the United States. Akhil, it is wonderful to welcome you back to We the People. Always great to be with you, Jeff. Thank you. And Anastasia Bowden is director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Before joining Cato, she was a civil rights attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, where she led the Equality and Opportunity Program. She co-created the wonderful podcast, DIST, which tells the stories behind infamous Supreme Court dissents, in which I'm delighted to plug. And she filed a brief in the case in support of Moore. Anastasia, it's wonderful to welcome you back to We the People. It's always a joy to be here, Jeff. Let's begin with the text and original understanding of the taxing clauses. Akhil, there's no one better than you to help us understand them. What do the relevant taxing clauses say, and what did Alexander Hamilton understand them to mean? So the longest section of the Constitution is the first section. It's about the legislature. Congress is first among equals. The longest article, the legislative article. Um, And the longest section of the longest article is Congress's powers. It's Article 1, Section 8. The longest section of the first and longest article. Um, And here's what it says. Um, There's lots of other language, but here's the key point. The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. One thing that we're learning um, just from, from that language alone is this is important. It's the beginning of the longest section of the first and longest article, and it's echoing the preamble. It's mentioning common defense and general welfare, and it's giving us all sorts of different words for the idea that we're going to be taxed up and down and sideways, and oh, we're going to like it because we're represented. You see, that's the earlier part of Article 1. The key theme of the American Revolution is not no taxation, exclamation point. It's no taxation without representation. Now, since we have representation, which we didn't have in Parliament, we can have taxation. And oh, just to, so that we don't uh, miss the point, the government is going to have, Congress has the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, 
and excises. Four different ways of telling you you're going to be taxed up and down and sideways. And, and it tells you why. Often law doesn't tell you why, but this tells you why. It's to provide for the common defense and general welfare. Now, there's going to be a certain special set of rules about a certain subset of taxes, but it, it mentions taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, and then says duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform. They all have to be uniform. Oh, but maybe not taxes. And it seems it turns out that some taxes not only don't have to be uniform, they can't be uniform. And those are direct taxes. Um, and we'll, I'm going to talk about, um, and, and, and so Article 1, Section 9 says about that, no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration uh, here and before directed to be taken, okay? So there's going to be um, some um, special rules about direct taxation. Um, and those rules are also hinted at, um, or actually more than hinted at, um, in yet another provision of the Constitution. Oh, so we got to read a whole bunch of clauses together here. So there's one more clause you need to know, and it's even earlier in the Constitution, and it's about apportionment rules, not just for House representation, but also for a certain kind of thing called direct taxes. It's Article 1, Section 2. Um, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within the union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of, of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. So that's a lot of language, and it doesn't all apply today. In a nutshell, oh, imposts, duties, excises, they all have to be uniform. Indirect taxes apparently have to be uniform, but direct taxes actually can't be uniform. They have to be apportioned in connection with um, how many seats each state has in the House of Representatives, which in turn was connected with the stinky three-fifths clause. And if that was hard to follow, that was by design because they were embarrassed by the stinky three-fifths clause. They don't use the word slave. So, but now the question is, what's a direct tax that has to be apportioned and what's not a direct tax, which doesn't have to be apportioned. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And Alexander Hamilton, since you asked me about him in particular, here's his take. He cares a lot about taxes. Why? Because he cares a lot about national security, because he was there at Valley Forge with General Washington. You need an army and a navy, otherwise you're dead. And you're not independent at all. You're under King George III. Now, what do you need for an army and a navy? You need money. That's why it says this is for the common defense and general welfare, these taxes. He wants to make it easy to raise taxes, but legitimate. Um, Congress is doing it. Um, and he writes no fewer than seven Federalist Papers, all about the taxing power. Federalist Papers are 85 op-eds, mainly written by Hamilton and Madison, a few by John Jay. Um, so let's just say, just make it easy, that Hamilton writes 40 of them. Seven of those 40 are all about taxes because that's what he cares passionately about. 
He devises a Secretary of Treasury, a tax system. Congress passes it. Washington signs it into law. There are people who say it's unconstitutional, including James Madison. Okay, but he thinks it is constitutional, and George Washington thinks it's constitutional. And there's a court case all about this. It's called the Hilton case. And, and he's now in retirement when this arises in the 1790s. And George Washington says, Alexander, will you please come out of retirement to defend this tax um, that you've crafted? It's a tax on carriages. On, on Today, we call it a tax on Rolls Royces or, or on Jaguars or, or luxury um, vehicles of a certain sort. He comes out of retirement for the first and only time in his life. He actually argues a Supreme Court case. He wins it unanimously. People play hooky from Congress just to watch him um, argue this case. He wins it unanimously, and he wins it on a theory saying we should have a very narrow definition of direct tax because the challenge is, oh, this is a direct tax and it's not properly apportioned. And he says, no, it's an indirect tax and it's perfectly fine. And we should have a, a broad tax power and a narrow, very narrow definition of what's a direct tax that requires apportionment, because that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and he wins this unanimously, and I'm 100% with him, and my friend on the other side in this debate is not, alas. Thank you so much for that wonderful history lesson. Um, Anastasia, Keel argues, as you heard, that Alexander Hamilton thought that direct taxes were limited to capitation or head taxes and land taxes. And those are the only taxes that have to be apportioned, according to Hamilton. And I think Akil is going to go on to argue that the Supreme Court got it wrong in the Pollock case when it struck down a, a, an income tax on the grounds that direct taxes should be defined more broadly. Uh, tell us if you think that uh, Akil is right about uh, Hamilton and the original understanding or not. Yes, well, I wouldn't dare uh, challenge Professor Amar too much on the history, uh, but I'll just press back a little bit to say that it's important when thinking about the taxing power and how it's limited to think about why uh, the founders made these distinctions about apportionment and direct and indirect taxes. And for sure, absolutely, I agree that there's a lot of time spent on defining the taxing power and uh, the founders were very concerned about it. And that's on the one hand because they wanted to cure the defects in the Articles of Confederation and make sure that uh, the federal government could raise money. But on the other hand, they were obviously very wary of a strong uh, taxing power given their experience with Britain, which hadn't just uh, taxed them without representation, but had nearly taxed them to death. And so I think they wanted to get that balance quite right. And so when we're talking about um, direct taxes and indirect taxes and why direct taxes must be apportioned, why must they be apportioned? Um, I think that's because the framers were very wary of taxation at the federal level. They disfavored taxation at the federal level compared to the state level. Um, and they wanted to make sure that the states didn't freeload off each other or that factions didn't target um, certain 
certain states and 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 try to you know tax one state to death uh, for the benefit of all the rest. And so, why do they make this distinction when when they're talking about apportionment between direct and indirect taxes? It's because direct taxes are impossible to escape. They're essentially taxes that you're subject to just for existing. You know, head taxes, property taxes. They're more permanent. You don't really have a choice over being subject to them. And indirect taxes are, are things like use taxes or consumption taxes, and they're things that you have a little bit more control over in your life. And so uh, they make it very hard. The, the founders made it very hard to impose direct taxes because apportionment is very hard. And that was for good reason. Um, now, in terms of whether one was meant to be more narrow than the other, um, I think, you know, and especially if we're going to talk about the, the, the carriage case in particular, you know, I don't, uh, where this is going down, of course, is, is whether uh, the carriage case can be analogized to um, the tax that's at issue in the Moore case. And ultimately, I think it's better to characterize uh, the carriage tax as a use tax because indeed it did have an exemption for certain carriages that were of certain uses. And I think that's an easy way to dispose of that tax. That's why um, it was a tax that didn't need to be apportioned. And it's it's a thing that makes it completely different from the tax at issue in the Moore case, which is more clearly a direct tax and in fact is more clearly attempting to be a direct income tax. Um, I'll note that this, you know, this idea that the that the tax at issue in the Moore, ca- uh, Moore case is um, an indirect tax didn't really come up all that much. And I think it's a, a in the briefing, at least, it was really sort of a, a second thought for the government. And I think it's really a credit to Professor Amar that it did, in fact, come up at oral argument. We might have a justice um, right on it. But, you know, it wasn't briefed so much because I think almost everybody assumed that this was supposed to be, that in more at least, it was supposed to be an income tax. Um, And that's where the real debate, that's what the real debate is about. Anastasia, thank you so much for helping us understand the argument that the carriage taxes might be upheld as as use taxes rather than on the grounds that they're not head taxes or, or land taxes. Akil, the Supreme Court uh, ignored Hamilton's narrow understanding of direct taxes in the Pollock case when it struck down uh, a federal income tax. Uh, And Pollock, of course, was overturned by the 16th Amendment. Uh, Tell us why you think Pollock got it wrong and why we should resurrect Hamilton's narrow original understanding. Not just Hamilton's original understanding. So my friend said some things that are not true. Okay, and I'm going to use every ounce of my authority as Sterling Professor of Constitutional Law and as an historian um, who's written many books um, and as a co-founder of the National Constitution Center. We've got to get our history right and our law right. So let me take a step back. You can have all sorts of theories, but you, you can't actually just assert facts that aren't so. So here's Hamilton's position. He says at Philadelphia, um, in the the very building just right across the mall from the National Constitution Center, he actually has a plan. And when you look at that plan, he says land taxes and head taxes are the only things that will require apportionment. That's very clear. And that's exactly what he says in the Federalist Number 36. He writes seven Federalist papers. He says only land taxes and only head taxes. Nothing about use or anything like that. And that's basically what he says in his oral argument um, in the Hilton case. Um, There's a little bit of wrinkle that I won't go into. And that is what 
actually the justices say. They don't say anything about use. That's, that's not true. The justices say that only land taxes and head taxes are um, subject to this apportionment rule as a general proposition. Um, and they say why, because they buy Hamilton's argument that we shouldn't have a broad definition of direct tax because direct taxes actually are very difficult to administer. And the whole point of the, this new regime is actually to make it much easier to tax. Nor is it true that Americans were actually heavily taxed um, in the revolutionary era. They were not, in fact. I assert as an historian who's written many books on this topic. The tax was illegitimate, but not high, um, the tax system under the British, because actually it wasn't based on representation. And the new model is you can be taxed up and down and sideways very heavily as long as it comes from Congress. And if you don't like that, you have to vote against Congress. And we didn't have that under the Brits, because you can't vote against parliaments. You don't have a vote for parliament. You can't vote against the king because you didn't have a, a vote for or against the king. The American Revolution, to repeat, is not no heavy taxation. It is exclamation point. It is not no taxation, exclamation point. It is no taxation without representation. And that's in the Declaration of Independence that was also drafted um, in the Independence Hall right across from the National Constitution Center. So we have to get our historical facts right. You can argue about whether Hilton is correct or not. You can argue about whether Hamilton was correct or not. But I promise you, Hamilton and Hilton are make this a very, very easy case. If that's, if, if we're only about that, now there are other later cases that we're gonna have to talk about. You asked about Pollock. But Hamilton says direct taxes are land taxes and head taxes and nothing else. And, I'll and again, if we want to go into details, it's all about slavery and the three-fifths clause. Um, and, and actually, one justice says that openly. Justice Patterson, another signer of the Constitution, Abraham Baldwin, says that very openly in the first Congress. Um, so, um, But it's not actually about use versus this versus that. It's just head taxes and land taxes are direct taxes and nothing else. That's Hamilton's position at Philadelphia. That's Hamilton's position in the Federalist Papers. That's Hamilton's position in his oral argument. That's the position of the justices of the Supreme Court in the, the Hilton case. Now, stuff happens afterwards, but we have to get straight. If this is actually going to be decided on the basis of Hamilton and Hilton, oh my God, this is easy. You can tax carriages. And it's not, it wasn't a tax on the use of a carriage. You were taxed whether just by having a carriage, whether you used it or not, if you used it once, if you used it zero times, if you used it a gazillion times, you were just taxed because you own a carriage. Uh, and now, you know, this new case is about basically, you know, you're taxed because you own certain wealth. And in fact, Hamilton says it's a fair tax because it's a luxury tax. That's actually Hilton and Hamilton. So we have to get our facts straight. And if I've said anything that's incorrect, I would be grateful for my colleague to actually correct me because I'm pretty darn sure everything I said is historically and legally accurate. Uh, thank you so much for that. Anastasia, any further thoughts on Hamilton and Hilton? But, but then let's go up to uh, Pollock and the post-Pollock cases which reject this narrow definition of direct taxes 
interpret uh, income much more broadly, are overturned by the 16th Amendment, and take us into the 20th century where you argue that uh, taxes are defined much uh, differently. Well, I'm certainly happy to move on, Jeff, but I think I would just respond by saying I think we're talking a little bit past each other here. Um, I don't actually deny exactly any of the history that you referred to, Professor Amar, except to say that um, I don't think that the founders wanted only the strong ability for taxation. I think there was obviously a fear of government that came along with revolution. And there are strong protections for individual liberty in the constitution, exactly because there's the skepticism of government, including restrictions on the power to tax. I mean, that's exactly why there's this, this distinction between direct and indirect and apportionment and non-apportionment taxes. So, so I don't think we can just say that that distinction is irrelevant or um, wasn't intended to, or didn't come from a fear of taxation because it did. On the one hand, yes, they wanted to cure the defects in the Articles of Confederation, but on the other hand, they wanted to make sure that they weren't giving the federal government um, uh, a blank check to, to tax the people, which everyone knows the power to tax is the power to destroy. So I, I don't think we're actually talking pa or that we, we have differences or that I'm denying any of your history so much as um, I don't want to take an overly reductionist view of history and say that some of these things can only be chalked up to say the three-fifths clause in slavery. I think there was a lot going on, including a fear of government largely, which which informs this distinction. And, you know, on the use tax thing, I, I again, I don't think I denied your history. I was only trying to intimate that, uh, that that is one explanation of that case that would allow the court to rule in more the way that I think it should while not upsetting any previous cases. So I promise, Jeff, we're going to talk about Pollock and what happens after the Civil War and the 16th Amendment, but we have to get the founding straight. It's very important. So here's my claim. The Constitution is all about national security. You have to join or die, and that's going to require all the states to get on board and to be able to fund an army and a navy because otherwise we're dead. Now, in order to get all the states on board, you have to get South Carolina on board and North Carolina and slave states. And here's what they're worried about. They're worried about a tax on slaves that in effect would be emancipation. So they insist that head taxes are special, okay, because they're worried about a tax on the heads of slaves. You can tax slaves $5 a head. You could tax slaves at $50 a head. You could tax slaves at $500 a head and tax it out of existence. That's why they have special rules saying you can't do head taxes the way we tax heads of cattle the way we tax heads of tobacco, hogsheads of tobacco or heads of lettuce. There's a special rule and it's about slavery and nothing else, Akeel asserts. And Patterson, who was at Philadelphia, says that in the Hilton case, he's a justice. And Baldwin, who went to Yale, but actually is a Georgian, says that in the first or second Congress and they say nothing else. It's, that's what it's all about and nothing but that. Akil, thank you for that account of the history. Uh, Anastasia, um, the court case, of course, is operating in a world after the 16th Amendment was passed. There's been a lot of precedent uh, since then. What is the central issue in the case, and how do you think the court should rule? 
So I think maybe it's best to start with the facts. In 2005, Charles and Kathleen Moore invested $40,000 into their friend's new business, Kiesenkraft, which provides tools to small farmers in India to essentially help them earn a living and to better their lives. And the Moors were really inspired by this. And so they invested 40 grand, which was a substantial amount of money for them. And in return, they received about a 13% share. So, of course, this corporation was immediately successful and profitable, but it never distributed any of those profits to the Moors. Instead, it kept reinvesting those profits and growing. And in fact, it has it has grown and expanded its, its impact in India. So as a result, the Moors haven't received a penny from their investment, and they really don't expect to. Nor could they force the corporation to uh, give it any dividends because they're minority stakeholders. They've and but they don't want to. They invested because they were moved by the founders' vision. Um, nevertheless, in 2017, Congress separately passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and that was intended to sort of restructure the way that foreign corporations are taxed in the U.S. And as part of that, it imposed the mandatory repatriation tax. So what that is, it's a one-time tax on shareholders who own more than 10% of a majority American-held foreign corporation. And the tax is based on the foreign corporation's accumulated income since 1986. So it's it's kind of amazing when you when you hear what goes on here, because regardless of whether that corporation has distributed a penny to the shareholder, based on the shareholder's pro rata share, um, now all of the corporation's accumulated earnings from 1986 on are now considered their taxable income for the year 2017. So the upshot of all of this is that the MRT created a $15,000 tax bill for the Moors, um, despite that they had never received a penny of this profit, and now they're being taxed on it. So they paid the tax and they sued, and they're arguing that the mandatory repatriation tax is unconstitutional uh, because it's not an income tax. And they argue that because it's not an income tax, which is uh, income taxes are, of course, exempt from apportionment, it's a tax that should be apportioned. And so, you know, they're saying that it's this is a direct tax. It's required to be apportioned. It's not. And so we should have had to pay it. And they're seeking a refund of their money. Thank you for summing up the argument so very clearly and, and so well. Akil, your argument, I think, is that uh, the mandatory repatriation tax is not a head tax or a, or a land tax, and therefore it doesn't have to be apportioned. Is, is that right? It is. I also will argue, or I'm happy to argue, that it's also an income tax. But my friend stated the facts beautifully, and you might think that there's a great unfairness here. Um, uh, and, and if you do, you should vote against Congress. Um, and um, it's not the only kind of income tax, frankly, um, that um, uh, applies even if no monies are received. And we can talk a, a, about that. Um, there are other parts of the code mark to market. If I own a house and it's, its value is appreciated under some tax systems, state and federal, um, I might have to pay on that, unreal, uh, on that unrealized, um, unrecognized gain. And I can borrow money against that typically. And, and, and if I brought my house or something else has appreciated in value. Don't feel too badly for me because I can often um, uh, uh, borrow against it. But but you might feel for the Moors. And if you do, you should absolutely vote against the Congress that um, uh, uh, passed that MRT. 
But I do want to just go back to the founding for just a minute. And then, Jeff, you're right. We're going to need to talk about the Pollock case and what happened after the Civil War, because uh, my colleague, my friend, does have some cases um, that are very important on on each side of of the thing. But I just one more time. And again, this is all in Hilton. Remember, he he he's one of the signers of the Constitution, the author of the New Jersey plan. And he's actually pulling the curtain back as a justice saying, Here's what it was really all about. Okay, the provision was made in favor of the southern states that possessed a large number of slaves. Uh, Then he says, and therefore we should read it very narrowly. The rule of apportionment is radically wrong. It cannot be supported by any solid reasoning. Why should slaves or a species of property be represented more than any other property? The rule therefore ought not to be extended by construction. So he's being really honest here. It's all about slavery. Let me read you one other sentence from the founding. It's from Abraham Baldwin. He went to Yale, which is um, a Connecticut school, but he actually then moves down to Georgia. And here's what he says when Ben Franklin, who also was there at Philadelphia and is in Signers Hall, introduces a petition. The petition is to um, uh, actually encourage Congress to try to minimize slavery. Um, And here's, it's on February 12th, 1790. Here's what Abraham Baldwin says. Um, He says, if we examine the Constitution, we shall find the expressions relative to this subject cautiously expressed and more punctiliously guarded than any other part. Um, It is declared in the same section, quote, that no capitation or direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census, unquote. This was intended to prevent Congress from laying any special tax upon Negro slaves, as they might in this way so burden the possessors of them as to induce a general emancipation. So Baldwin is telling us very openly in in an early Congress, 1790, Patterson is telling us very openly in the Hilton case, all these rules about direct taxes, they're just about slavery. We should read them very narrowly. They're about head taxes and land taxes. Now, I haven't told you what makes land taxes slightly different. And here's where my friend actually has a point. One of the reasons they were worried about land taxes was a certain fairness concern, similar in a way to what she said about the Moors. The concern is, suppose you actually had some land, you you inherit it from your father, you're land rich, but you don't have the money to pay the tax man. And it seems unfair that you have to pay the tax man when you don't have any money. And she's actually saying the Moors are kind of in that situation. So that's actually an argument that you could make that it's not technically this MRT, a land tax, but you might think it's like a land tax for certain reasons. But anyway, that's all the founding vision. And and But my claim is going to be um, on that it's not a head tax, it's not a land tax, it's therefore not a direct tax at all. Um, so it's perfectly okay. If you don't like it, vote against Congress. It might be, you know, un- unfair, but that's why, you know, your vote is is really important. But I think her best argument is in part, even if it's not technically a land tax, it seems to raise some of the same fairness concerns. Because um, uh, I told you all about head taxes, that's all about slavery and nothing but. And I didn't really tell you about land taxes. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, Anastasia, at the oral argument, the lawyer for the Moors argued that the government had misinterpreted the meaning of the word income in the 16th Amendment 
And a court ruling that adopted the government's definition would make a hash out of current law. The Moors say that income means only gains made through the payment to a taxpayer, not an increase in the value of the property. Tell us about that argument and how it fared before the Supreme Court. Yes, absolutely. As you said, Jeff, the thrust of this case really is about the 16th Amendment. And while, as I said earlier, I really do think it's a credit to Professor Amar for his brief, which which brought up this argument um, that, that, in fact, the MRT can be justified as an indirect tax. The point remains that the entire point of the, the Supreme Court case is that this is assumed to be an income tax, you know, a direct tax that's an income tax. And the question then is whether income taxes have a realization requirement. Does the money actually have to be realized before it can be considered income that can be taxed under the 16th Amendment? So, you know, perhaps there there is an argument that it's an indirect tax, but it really didn't take center stage at, at the Supreme Court. and It's not part of the question presented. And so the attorneys for the Moors come to the Supreme Court in an oral argument. They base their arguments mainly on text and history. And they say that the 16th Amendment talks about income derived from certain sources. And derive must mean something. And I think it, it is commonly meant and was commonly meant um, realize. And the same thing with uh, goes for the word income. They point to a lot of historical sources which seem to indicate that income was always used to mean income that had actually been um, received, not just speculative income or income that's sort of on the books, um, you know, not just uh, an appreciation and value that you haven't actually um, gotten any use from. And so they rely on this text and history argument, an originalist argument. And they also say that really the, the the government's argument would eviscerate the distinction between direct and indirect taxes altogether because under the government's definition of income, really anything now can be considered income. All sorts of wealth taxes and whatnot would be considered income, which would free them from apportionment. And in reality, the founders had meant those taxes to be apportioned and uh, uh, difficult to impose. And, you know, I think it was a difficult argument for the Moore's attorney. Um, But on the other hand, some of the justices had very difficult questions for Solicitor General Elizabeth Preligar. Um, Justices on both sides were very concerned about the implications. On the one hand, some justices were concerned that if the Moors are successful, there are all sorts of taxes that sort of rely on constructive realization. You know, they don't actually, it's not a full-on realization and they're worried about imperiling the constitutionality of those taxes. On the other hand, some of the justices were worried that the government's argument would would mean that anything can be considered income now and that there's really no limits on it anymore. Um, and, and just how unfair that would be. So, you know, ultimately, I think both sides face tough questions. Most vocal on uh, against the Moors was, uh, in my opinion, Justice Sotomayor um, and perhaps Justice Jackson, who seemed very poised to uphold the MRT. And on the other side, we had Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch asking very difficult questions of Solicitor General Preligar. Um, at one point, Justice Gorsuch saying, I'm, I'm searching for a limit here. Give me a limit. Um, so far, I see none at all. And so uh, it was It was a heated argument. And for a tax case, I think very interesting. Thank you very much for uh, introducing us to the argument so well. Akil, you were at the argument in person. What did you hear from the justices on both sides as they uh, debated the meaning of the 16th Amendment, which says the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever sources derived without apportionment? 
So um, we, uh, I was there, and we, um, and I think my friend has nicely described um, a lot of the um, uh, issues um, and the argument. She's absolutely correct that there was next to no discussion, alas, of the founding vision. Um, Hilton um, was mentioned maybe once or twice. Hamilton, I think, not at all. So what I've been talking about before was not the main event at all. Um, but I think it should be. And But now let's, let's talk about why we have a 16th Amendment. Oh, because if Akhil is actually right, our audience might say, why did you even need an income tax amendment? If the only kind of um, direct taxes that require apportionment are land taxes and head taxes, well, an income tax isn't a land tax and an income tax isn't a head tax. So why do we even need the 16th Amendment? And the answer is as follows. And, and that um, because Abraham Lincoln didn't think you did. He actually signed into law in the Civil War an income tax um, and uh, was a soak the rich tax, just as the carriage tax in Hilton was a soak the rich tax. Um, and the Supreme Court upheld the income tax under Abraham Lincoln. But another generation of fat cat um, railroad lawyers in the so-called Lochner era arose and in the 1890s case called Pollock, they invalidated an income tax. They said they, they went against Patterson and Hamilton and Washington and this early vision that was settled for a hundred years. The only taxes that require apportionment are land and heads and income tax isn't either of those. And the Springer case said that and Lincoln thought that, oh, but Pollock comes along and says, oh, income tax doesn't require apportionment. And there's a great, it's in the 1890s, there's a great, that's a 5-4 case. The main dissent, the lean dissent is by John Marshall Harlan, the same great dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson, the same great dissenter in the Lochner cases. And he says, this is another Dred Scott, this is going to be a disaster. And he says too, this clause was all, direct tax was all about slavery. Why are we reading it broadly? He says that, okay? And I believe he was right. The Pollock case was completely wrong on originalist grounds, but it's 5-4, it's a majority. So the 16th Amendment comes along and is, and the we the people actually say, we think the Pollock case was wrong. It's one of three times in all of American history where the people smacked down the Supreme Court. One was a case called Chisholm at the founding. One was Dred Scott, um, which led to the 14th Amendment saying everyone's a citizen, you know, even black people. And this is the third one. So I think Pollock was one of the lowest moments of the Supreme Court. I'm with John Marshall Harlan, but then we have this amendment. And my friend is absolutely right. That's what they were talking about. What is income under the 16th Amendment? Now, um, I was there. I think here are the best arguments that it is income. In my view, it doesn't have to be. It's not heads. It's not land. Done. Um, Hamilton, Hilton, Washington. Um, but if you don't have that view, if you think, oh, it has to be an income tax, the 16th Amendment doesn't say realized income. Actually, many early income taxes, uh, even under Lincoln and in states and thereafter, didn't have a realization um, uh, uh, trigger. Many um, um, other um, income taxes, uh, other income tax provisions, not a few, many others don't have realization provisions. For example, a thing called mark to market. Okay, so that's not a requirement. That's one argument. It doesn't have to be realized as long as um, here's a second. 
The Irving Fisher definition of income is simply the increase in your wealth. Wealth is like the, the water in a bathtub. Um, income is basically kind of what comes into the spigot. If the bathtub is rising, you know, you've got income. It's just, uh, and Irving Fisher is a very great economist at Yale. Um, he actually writes an article in 1896 and says, this is the definition of income. So uh, the economists say income is income whether it's realized or not. Um, various income taxes at the state level, uh, even before the 16th Amendment and thereafter, and huge parts of the tax code don't have a realization requirement. Then there's a third argument. Even if there is a realization requirement, on the facts of this case, money was realized. It was realized by a corporation. And yes, actually, the Moors don't control the whole of the corporation, but they control part of it. Um, money was realized by a corporation. And so the real question is, just to whom do you attribute the money? Because this is a foreign corporation, it's hard for the U.S. government to reach it. And so we actually tax the shareholders, just like sometimes in a partnership, even if the money doesn't come into my pocket, I'm a partner, I get I get taxed on it. So those were the analytic points back and forth. I think she stated them, my friend stated them very well. Um, on all those issues, I'm actually with the government. I don't think it has to be realized. I think it, in fact, was realized here um, um, in any event. Um, final point on the nose counting I think having, you know, being in the audience, I count the noses differently. Um, this is going to be, this tax is going to be upheld. I predict there will be at most, I predict, one justice on the other side, at most. Um, some justices may say we should just send it back because for all sorts of technical reasons, we shouldn't even decide it. If there's more than one justice who actually bottom line, end of the day, um, sides with the Moors and to reverse the court below, I'll buy my friend lunch. Okay, because I so I don't think actually this one's going to be a close one, truthfully. Great. Thank you for that. Anastasia, in your brief, uh, your amicus brief for petitioners, you argue that since the ratification of the 16th Amendment, the court has consistently interpreted income as referring to amounts that taxpayers realize in a particular accounting period and that therefore the Ninth Circuit was wrong and contorted the definition of income beyond recognition. Tell us more about the core of your argument and why you think the court should adopt it. Yes, well, certainly um, there are Supreme Court cases uh, explicitly interpreting the 16th Amendment as requiring realization. Now, uh, General Prelegar said that those cases can be distinguished for various reasons, um, or that they've been undermined since then. And then she also pointed to many of uh, the other taxes that Professor Amar referred to, which don't seem at first blush at least to require realization. But um, the attorney for the Moors had many responses to that. So if we look at things like partnerships, that's, that's one thing where the partners can be taxed even if they don't realize, so to speak, any of the income of the partnership. But as the attorney for the Moors, Andrew Grossman said, um, you know, that's a very closely held organization. It's very different than something like a corporation where you only hold uh, uh, more than 10%. Um, you know, in a partnership, you're usually going to have some control or at least constructive control over how, what that income, 
what use it's put towards. And so it's it's reasonable for Congress to to consider that at least constructive realization, but still there should be a realization requirement, some form of it. Um, whereas the Moors have had no realization at all. It's just unfair to call it constructive realization on their end. The same thing goes for things like futures contracts, which again, Professor Amar referred to, you know, those are settled each day, which creates sort of a constructive realization that you're opting into it each day that you, there's at least some form of consent there. It's very easy actually to say that all of these supposed taxes that don't require realization do in some form require at least constructive realization. And while it's true that the 16th Amendment does not say realization, you know, there were some great briefs, including a brief of corpus linguistic professors in support of neither party who thought that both parties kind of had the methodology wrong, but at least agreed um, at the end of the day that the word income itself was always used um, to have an inherent realization requirement, um, and and that and again, you know, I think the case law overall supports that. That that's a common thread through the case law leading up until now. Um, it's also just se- it seems commonsensical to me that 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 income would require um, realization, but. In any event, you know, I, I respect the argument that there was realization here. The corporation realized some income, and that came up a lot at oral argument. But the point is, there was no realization as to the person who's actually paying the taxes. There's no realization to as to the Moors. And so I think it's a problem to just point to realization by a third party. And some of the justices seem to indicate, well, maybe that's a due process problem. Maybe you should have brought a due process claim. And maybe that's true, although I'm very skeptical of due process because I, I litigated due process cases and I know what it means to, to be under the rational basis test. You're almost never going to win under the government. But I think it also makes sense to consider it a 16th Amendment problem because the tax itself is not qualifying as an income tax. So that would be the argument, I think, on the flip side of, of Professor Amar's. Great. Thank you for putting the argument so very well. And Akil, just one last beat about why you're with the government on the claim that, in your view, the 16th Amendment does not require realization. So actually, I have a question for my friend. It's not a gotcha question. Um, But if we're looking at the precedents honestly, how many Supreme Court cases, let's say in the last 90 years, have actually said um, that parts of the income tax code actually have to be struck down as not within Congress's power? I mean, there might be other, you know, reasons why, oh, this violates um, a church and state because you're imposing a tax on a church or something like that. But um, what are the cases in which the Supreme Court, let's say since 1930, um, has said um, Congress passed an income, uh, has an income tax, and it goes so far beyond what the 16th Amendment and the rest of the Constitution authorizes that it's just um, it's not constitutional unless it's apportioned by the states. What what's the case? Yeah, well, I think I think my answer to that, of course, would be that we've seen an explosive growth in government beyond what I think the founders intended since the 1930s. Um, yet, despite that, I don't think Congress has ever gone so far to do something as absurd as this. And so, the fact that one has, that a tax has never been struck down doesn't mean that the realization requirement doesn't exist. It means that it's not yet been violated, and that even those cases upholding other taxes. Um, they still 
mention in many instances some sort of realization. And so, you know, I, I don't think that I don't think that, you know, just because the court hasn't had the opportunity to strike down um, a tax is beyond Congress's power doesn't mean uh, maybe it just hasn't had the opportunity because truly this is far beyond anything Congress has done. That's very helpful, you know, because now we're actually kind of agreeing on the basic facts and then we can do the analysis. So I think, Jeff, I have three big responses. First, I mean, I'm saying I don't think that the text of the Constitution, um, I don't think my friend has that on her side. Anything about the founding, you know, not Hamilton, not Washington, not Hilton. It's not land. It's not um, uh, heads done. Okay. so. so the wars lose. And if you don't like that, vote against Congress. Then there are the precedents. And I'm saying my friend doesn't actually have a single precedent that's remotely analogous to this one. Um, um, actually, maybe four points. Then she says, well, it goes beyond the 16th Amendment, and, and there's this corpus linguistics brief, and and it's and, and, and income really implicitly requires realization. My own view is. Um, this is a nice question of whether we look, because it's a slightly technical word, at slightly technical um, definitions. The leading economist is Irving Fisher, and he writes a major piece on what capital is, what income is, what labor is. It's in 1896, and he says, actually, income is income whether realized or not, as long as the value of an asset has um, increased, even if it's a paper gain, that's still income. So I don't think that actually the text of the 16th Amendment, truthfully, is on my friend's side. I don't think she has the founding. I don't think she has any modern precedents, really. I don't think she has the text of the 16th Amendment as understood by the people at the time. And I actually think, she says, well, you know, this is just a weird provision. Paul Ryan and others have said one third of the tax code would be vulnerable if we actually adopted this position. At oral argument, they were talking about trillions, not billions, but trillions um, that are going to be taken off the table. I was there in the room. I think that really bothered even conservative, that prospect really bothered even conservative justices like Sam Alito. So again, I'm predicting that this is going to be you know, upheld pretty lopsidedly, truth be told, or remanded, maybe just send it back down, address Amar's arguments about Hamilton and Hilton. Um, And here's why we've been spending so much time, uh, Jeff, on what seems like a really technical issue, you know, uh, um, because the real debate about this case was really all about whether you can have a wealth tax in America. It's actually all about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, if they ever, you know, had a majority um, at their backs, you know, in both House and Senate and a like-minded president, could they impose a wealth tax on um, uh, Americans? And um, on my friend's um, view, on the Moore's view, they have a kind of a a certain definition. Oh, that would be a direct tax. That would be basically improper. On my view, it's not land. It's not heads. It's every bit as permissible as a capit- uh, as a carriage tax. And if you don't like that, and you might not, <laughs> I actually have some wealth myself, truth be told. And if you don't like that, you have to vote against the Congress people who give it to you. And if you're for it, vote for them. That's actually what the American Revolution and the Constitution were really all about. 
no taxation without representation, and yes, taxation with representation. Thank you so much for that. Uh, the last word in this uh, conversation is definitely to you, uh, Anastasia. Sum up the argument in your brief, which is that the tax in this case was unprecedented in U.S. law, that the 16th Amendment only grants Congress the power to tax income, that other laws will not be impacted by the court's decision here. And in fact, you say that ruling against petitioners would overturn a century of this court's jurisprudence. Yes, well, well, that's exactly right, Jeff. You know, uh, Professor Amar said that that my argument is that uh, that the Sixteenth Amendment implicitly requires realization, but in fact, it's no, it's not just implicit; it's it's in the word derived, and also it is part and parcel of the meaning income. And yes, you can point to a source or two on the other side. I'm sure, you know, as as all originalists know, um, there are originalists who disagree about original meaning, right? Um, but I think that the evidence is quite lopsided in favor of finding that uh, income is inherently, at the time, was understood to have a realization requirement. Um, also say, yes, there's tons of case law directly on point. I mean, not it's not exactly directly on point because I do think that this law is so far beyond uh, what Congress has ever done before, but it is on point in the sense that uh, the, the Supreme Court has consistently alluded to to a realization component. You know, the last thing I just wanted to say is I feel like I'm having a little bit of an out-of-body experience. I remember one of the first times that I became familiar with Professor Amar's work was during the whole Obamacare debate. I was a research assistant for Professor Barnett. So, you know, this was a big part of, of, of my study. And um, of course, the big broccoli hypothetical came up, right? Like if, if Congress can tax you for not having health insurance and can it tax you for not eating broccoli and isn't it going to have a broccoli mandate next? And that can't possibly be right. Um, so that interpretation of the Constitution of the Commerce Clause can't be right. And I remember seeing Professor Amar speak on a panel and he said, well, no, it can be right. They can do that. And if you don't like it, the answer isn't that it's unconstitutional. It's to vote the bastards out. And that that really stuck with me. That phrase stuck with me. And I, I remember it so distinctly. And it's kind of exactly what Professor Marr is um, saying here. And that came up that oral argument where, where Justice Gorsuch and Justice Leto said, hey, isn't this going to lead to some pretty absurd taxes that, that the founders would never have intended? And uh, sen uh, the Solicitor General said, well, you know, no, because Congress is is aware of its, you know, it want, they want to keep their seats. They're not going to do something that's politically unpopular. Um, sort of trust us. Justice Gorsuch, on the other hand, um, said, well, no, wouldn't you agree that where the court opens the door, Congress usually, <laughs> you know, walks right on in. And I think, in fact, that the whole Constitution was written exactly because we don't trust our elected representatives and we don't want to give them um, a, a blank check to do things. And and because we we are distrustive of democracy, we want to place limits on democracy because democracy is not the guiding light of our Constitution. Liberty is. And so, you know, I think with that frame of mind, um, I don't think that the only answer is vote the bastards out. I think the answer is that the Constitution is limited for a reason, and that's because the founders' guiding principle was individual liberty above all. And I think that's probably, you know, that disagreement is what's um, causing uh, Professor Amar and I to have uh, different opinions on the case. But, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, I respectfully dissent. <laughs> I respectfully dissent is a wonderful ending to a Vigorous, engaged, and ultimately illuminating conversation. Thanks to both of you for educating us, as always. And it is wonderful to have you 
on We The People. Akilah Moore, Anastasia Bowden, thank you. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Samson Mastashare. It was engineered by Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Samson Mastashare, Cooper Smith, and Yara Durese. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. Sign up for the newsletter. And remember always that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. As the holidays approach, consider a donation of $5, $10, or more to support the mission and signal the importance of the podcast to your lifelong learning. You can do that at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or for a donation of any amount, check out constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. We promise not to tax any donation that you make. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.